It's a striking image even for those who have seen it before. The visual of a young woman clad in a traditional 1800s gown, her hands in her lap, her hair pulled back and painstakingly curled, would be ordinary if it weren't for the giant tribal tattoo covering her chin. The girl's facial expression is a cross between noble and despair. Her eyes, even in black and white, pierce through the camera, and any viewer can tell that she has quite a story to tell. In fact, this image was one of the most widely circulated among the early days of the Wild West. The portrait belongs to Olive Oatman, one of the most tragic heroes of the Old West, and a woman whose name and story have largely been lost to history. On this episode, join me for the story of the events that led up to that legendary photograph and the long, winding saga of the captivity and release of Olive Oatman. Thank you for tuning in to Scattered Through Time, where we delve into some of history's quirkiest, most underappreciated, and exciting tales. I'm your host, John Mayle, and I'm thrilled to bring you all of the things you didn't know that you didn't know. The story of Olive Oatman begins the same way most of these Wild West legends do, with a humble family striking it out on their own in an attempt to find a better life than the one being offered back east. The Oatman family were former followers of the Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints, early Mormons, but by 1851, the family had joined a small group that broke off from the church known as the Brewsterites, who believed in the words of James G. Brewster, who preached that California was the correct gathering place for the Mormons, as opposed to Utah. Royce Oatman, his wife Mary, and their seven children departed Independence, Missouri in 1850 to travel by wagon train to California. Brewster himself led one group, while Oatman led one on a different route. You can probably see where this is going. That route took them to Maricopa Wells, Arizona, which is in the heart of what is now Maricopa County. When the Oatman family reached Maricopa Wells, they were given two warnings at the outpost, which would both come into play. Warning 1. The trail they were attempting to traverse was very desolate and dangerous, going through the heart of the barren Sonoran Desert. And 2. The Native Americans that called Arizona home, notably the Yavapai, Mojaves, and Apaches, were belligerent and often violent towards white pioneers crossing their territories. Despite those two dire warnings, Royce was eager to get the Oatmans to their destination, so he decided that the nine of them would venture through the desert on their own, leaving behind the other members of the party, who chose to remain in Maricopa to recharge. This trek was to be short-lived, as the Oatmans soon encountered a group of Yavapai Native Americans, who asked for food and tobacco, but at some point, the conversation turned into a violent encounter and the Yavapais massacred the Oatman family. A newspaper account from 1857 describes what happened to the family. It reads, They traveled the Santa Fe Trail, but missed Santa Fe, and the Rio Grande Gila route. 
Eighty miles above the mouth of the latter river, Apaches fell upon the family, then separated from their wagon train. The Indians took captive Marianne and Olive, seven and thirteen respectively, left fifteen-year-old Lorenzo for dead, and killed the others. Thus the two sisters started their captivity, which was to last five years for Olive and a shorter time for Marianne, who died while in the hands of the Indians. We know now that it wasn't Apaches that attacked the Oatmans, but the other details of the account shed light on the terror that the prospective settlers endured. Royce and Mary Oatman and three of their children were killed. Lorenzo Oatman was thought to be killed and left for dead by the Native Americans. When he woke up, he noticed that the bodies of his sisters Olive and Marianne were not among the carnage. They were taken captive and rushed away by the Yavapai. At 13 and 7 years old respectively, Olive and Marianne were in the middle of every pioneer's worst nightmare. In that same newspaper account, reporters were able to ask Olive about her harrowing ordeal, and she recounted those first moments with her captors. It was written, The Indians stripped her of her shoes and nearly all her clothing. Her sister had no shoes on at the time, and they started off with the speed of horses in a northerly direction into a mountainous region. They traveled all night without resting. At noon the next day, they stopped a few minutes to breathe and then hurried on again until nightfall when they came into camp. She thinks they traveled a hundred miles. She was barefoot and the sharp stones lacerated her feet and her blood sprinkled the whole distance. Whenever she lagged, they would come behind and beat her to urge her on. Her sister soon gave out, but being small, the Indians carried her in their arms. The reason for their hurrying on so rapidly was fear lest they might be pursued. Having just seen the massacre of their family, and with a group of Native Americans who just committed the atrocity, they couldn't even communicate with their captors. Olive recounted a particularly troubling experience, which was described in the book The Blue Tattoo by Margot Mifflin. At the camp, the Indians slaughtered a cow and cooked the meat over a fire made with flint and wild cotton. Then they baked dough made from the oatman's flour and soaked it in bean soup. They scornfully offered the food to the girls, perhaps mocking Royce's claim that he had no food, but they couldn't eat. They watched in silence, their stomachs rumbling, as their captors ate under the full moon to the sound of coyotes crying in the hills. Olive's worst fear was that she and her sister would be burned alive. Mary Ann was more concerned about leaving her dead family behind. After the meal, Olive and Mary Ann huddled together by the campfire, terrified as the Yavapais jeered at them, especially Mary Ann. When her feelings became uncontrollable, Olive recalled, she would hide her head in my arms and most piteously sob aloud. But in the words of legendary pioneer Kit Carson, the Gila River area is so utterly desolate, desert and godforsaken, 
a wolf could not make his living upon it. Olive and Marianne were soon made to suffer at the hands of the Yavapai. They were forced into slave labor at the village, finding food for their captors in the barren desert. They were also subject to frequent beatings towards the beginning of their captivity. This cruelty took a heavy toll on Olive and Marianne, as Olive described in her captivity narrative, for which it should be noted was heavily embellished by the author Reverend Royal B. Stratton in his anti-Native American fervor. She said, It was our lot to serve under these enslaved women, with a severity more intolerable than that to which they were subjected by their merciless lords. They invented modes and seemed to create necessities of labor, that they might gratify themselves by taxing us to the utmost, and even took unwarranted delight in whipping us on beyond our strength. And all their requests and exactions were couched in the most insulting and taunting language and manner. As it then seemed, and as they had the frankness soon to confess, to fume their hate against the race to whom we belonged, often under the frown and lash were we compelled to labor for whole days upon an allowance amply sufficient to starve a common dandy civilized idler, and those days of toil wrung out at the instance of children younger than ourselves, who were set as our taskmasters. They knew nothing of cultivating the soil. After we had learned their language enough to talk with them, we ventured to speak to them of the way by which we had lived, of the tilling of the ground. It's easy to see how Olive thought she was a goner during her captivity. In that same narrative, she describes multiple incidents of terror, including the first night they were brought to camp, where the girls were lifted onto a pile of tree bark and the entire village danced around them, that she described as a, quote, unrestrained superstition. Not surprisingly, Olive and Marianne considered escaping, but as Oatman suggested in her captivity narrative, it was not a likely scenario. She said, There was no beauty, no loveliness, no attractions in the country possessed by these unlovely creatures to make it pleasant. If there had been the blotting out of all the dreadful realities that had marked our way to it, or the absence of the cruelties that had made our stay a living death, often has my little sister come to me with a heart surcharged with grief, and the big tears standing in her eyes, or perhaps sobbing most convulsively over the maltreatment and chastisement that had met her good intentions. For she ever tried to please them, and most piteously would she say, How long, oh how long, dear Olive, must we stay here? Can we never get away? Do you think they intend to kill us? Oh, they are so ugly and savage. Sometimes I would tell her that I saw but little chance for escape, that we had better be good and ready for any fate, and try to wait in submission for our lot. After the initial shock of their plight wore off, Olive and Marianne were with the Yavapais for about a year, before their situation took a drastic turn for the better, when a visiting group of Mojave Native Americans noticed the two girls during a trading visit, and offered up a bounty of a few pounds of beads, two horses, and two blankets, according to the 1857 newspaper account. Despite a grueling 350-mile journey on foot to Mojave Territory, 
the girls found the Mojaves to treat them much more favorably. The newspaper account says that a chief named Espinasse took Olive and Marianne in and treated them as his own, offering them food and blankets and not forcing them into any labor. He even gave the girls land so they could plant seeds and grow corn and other Native American crops. This treatment was a total turnaround from the abuse at the hands of the Yavapais. The girls were fully assimilated into their Mojave group, so much so that they were tattooed with traditional Mojave markings, just like everyone else in the tribe. For Olive, based on the photos, this meant two lines that extended from the left and right corners of her lower lip down to her chin with small horizontal accents coming off the main branches and three slimmer vertical lines going from the center of her lower lip to her chin. In later interviews and speeches, Open claimed that these markings were placed to identify her if she ever tried to escape. But it appears that every Mojave woman at the time had some form of the markings. Olive and Marianne were also tattooed on their arms. This whole process must have been incredibly foreign to them. Olive described the process in detail in her captivity narrative. We had seen them do this to some of their female children, and we had often conversed with each other about expressing the hope that we should be spared from receiving their marks upon us. I ventured to plead with them for a few moments that they would not put those ugly marks upon our faces, but it was in vain. To all our expostulations, they only replied in substance that they knew why we objected to it, that we expected to return to the whites, and we would be ashamed of it then but that it was their resolution we should never return, and that as we belonged to them, we should wear their ki'ichuk. They said further that if we should get away, and they should find us among other tribes, or if some other tribe should steal us, they would by this means know us. They then pricked the skin in small regular rows on our chins with a very sharp stick, until they bled freely. They then dipped these same sticks in the juice of a certain weed that grew on the banks of the river, and then in the powder of a blue stone that was to be found in low water, in some places along the bed of the stream. The stone they first burned until it would pulverize easy, and in burning it turned nearly black, and pricked this fine powder into these lacerated parts of the face. The process was somewhat painful though it pained us more for two or three days after than at the time of its being done. They told us this could never be taken from the face, and that they had given us a different mark from the one worn by their own females, as we saw, but the same with which they marked their own captives, and that they could claim us in whatever tribe they might find us. At this point, it's likely that the girls believed they had no living family members outside of their adoptive Native American parents, Espanese and Espaneo, and their biological daughter Topeka. The visiting party left without incident, none the wiser that they had spent two weeks with girls who were last seen three years prior. It's feasible that Olive and Marianne might have been reluctantly content to settle into their new life amongst their adoptive family and freedom to do as they pleased. But Olive's world was again turned on its head when an unbearable drought spread across the West. 
1857 newspaper account says that the Mojave relied upon overflow from the Colorado River to irrigate their crops, but because of the drought, a massive crop failure and famine set in. This led to an unbearable pain for Olive, as her sister Mary Ann would join many Mojaves in starving to death. That moment is described in the 1857 newspaper account vividly. The child wasted away by degrees. She knew that she was to die and talked calmly of death to Olive. She had no disease, but there was no food and she wasted miserably in the famine that desolated the tribe. Olive herself was near perishing, but the strength of her constitution saved her life. In fact, Olive owes her life to her adopted mother, Espineo, who is mentioned in the same account as taking extraordinary measures to make sure Olive survived the famine. It is said, She speaks of the chief's wife in terms of warmest gratitude. A mother could not have expressed more kind-hearted sympathy than did this good woman whose gentle treatment saved her life. This woman had laid up seed corn to plant and which even the dying groans of her own people could not make her bring it out. When she saw Olive's distress, she ground this corn between stones, made a gruel, and fed it to her, not reserving any even to herself. Although Olive miraculously made it out alive, her last remaining family member had passed away. Someone who had been by her side through the attack on the Gila River, the 100-mile barefoot march, slave labor, being traded to the Mojave, and getting tattooed. At this point, Olive had no one. Or so she thought. Lorenzo Oatman had survived the original attack in 1851, and he knew his sisters were taken away alive. He had healed from his wounds and set out searching for Olive and Marianne, all while they had thought he had perished. On our next episode, will reveal the climactic conclusion to the search and how Olive Oatman became a literal living legend in the West. Please join me. And if you can't get enough of Scattered Through Time, please follow us on Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram at Scattered Through Time, all one word, and on Twitter at, at Through Podcast. That's T-H-R-O-U-G-H-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. I'm John Mayle, and thank you so much for listening. We will have Olive Oatman Part 2 next time.